Welcome to Antimatterpod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. This week we're discussing the Star Trek Discovery fourth season episode, The Galactic Barrier, which ironically came out the day before Sally Kellerman, who starred in Where No Man Has Gone Before, died. Just a fun Amazing. little coincidence. <laughs> fun fact! Yeah. She lived a good long life and left an impact, so she's good. She did, and she was truly wonderful in the original series' second pilot, and I was thinking of her and her character, who is very dear to me, as I watched this episode. Hmm. But the other thought that went through my head was, go home, pacing, you're drunk. (laughs) I struggled with this episode for a few different reasons that I think are mostly me i don't know i don't think it's taste i think it's definitely the pacing was off yeah the stuff with tarka's backstory they were doing fun camera angles of you know tarka in the past and then it zooms and tarka's back here and stuff like that that was a a little too gimmicky for me i like fun camera work but it was I don't know it was weird and especially in this particular episode where there was also the lighting and there was Mm. also the shaky camera because we're in the barrier stuff I had trouble this episode made me ill is the truth and I thought it was content but I watched it a second time and I still got ill and when I looked away and just Mm. listened for a few seconds I felt better so i really think it was actually motion sickness (laughs) okay that's good because you know i was joking in a slack that we're not too thrilled with this episode and someone was like but antibatter pot is where i go for positive discovery opinions so i'm glad that we're not leading with this episode is so bad it made annika sick (laughs) yeah it was not the episode content it was the effects My beef with this episode is largely about pacing and structure for the episode and the whole season because it feels very much like the same problem that the Book of Boba Fett had where I love these characters, except Tarka, and I care (laughs) about this story and I'm interested to see how the plot unfolds, but A, it doesn't feel like the writers are necessarily interested in that plot. And they're just sort of going down little side streets and exploring other characters. And here's a whole episode where Mando learns to use the the Darksaber. And here's a whole episode about Tarka's backstory, which really needed to come much, much, much earlier in the season. Because at this point, I'm like, it's not cool story, still murder, but it's cool story, I still don't care. Yeah, and also he told this story yeah. in words. So it wasn't a surprise. There was nothing that happened in Tarka's backstory that I hadn't already imagined. There were no revelations. So no. The best thing I can say about it is that it reminded me of when Gaius Baltar is on Cobol and he's stranded with various marines and mm. then he sees six and and he brings him to the temple and i love that stuff 
Galactica actually has nothing to do with it, so it made me just wish I was watching Galactica. <laughs> but no, it's funny, you mentioned this and you described Taka as a cut-rate Gaius Belta, and I was like, yes, and that's the problem. It's partially Sean Doyle is such a solid physical presence. It's why he's so wonderful as the crooked bureaucrat, the guy you overlook until it's almost too late. But he seems too solid to be a frail scientist as he's meant to be in these flashbacks. Kind of wish that they had cast James Callis in the role because he is much better at that sort of twitchy, untrustworthy genius. I love Sean Doyle, but I don't think he's right for this part. Yeah, I mean... Like I said, I was like, I wish I was watching James Callis. So yes, exactly. I agree. It's not Sean Doyle's fault that he's not who I want him to be. No. But he wasn't selling it to me. I didn't feel like any of the, oh, you're a slave and this is terrible and you're a prisoner. And mm. I didn't have any of that. So the other thing it reminded me of was X-Men. Like yeah. Magneto and... Professor X. Yes. And, and how they're, you know, besties who... Look, they're in love, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and, but also, like, brothers in arms, you know, soldiers side by side, but ultimately have a conflict that comes out of their different ways of getting to their goal. Yeah. And it was almost like they were suggesting that these two had different ways of getting to their goal but it was solely because Tarka was potentially like spying or what like he was he was you know, a double cross in some way in order to mm. presumably like get a better position in the slave prison camp so I can't really fault him uh, I had trouble with the dialogue in this episode, but I think it was that Asira had promised him freedom if he found out what Oris was working on and handed over that experiment. Right. And it's like, obviously, no one should give up another living person, you know, just to save themselves, but also that's understandable. Yeah, my beef with the, the Magneto comparison is that Magneto and... Professor X have a moral and ethical conflict and I don't feel like there was any of that with Tarka right. and Oros. We were talking yesterday, you and I, and we realised that we didn't have much to say or didn't think we had much to say about this episode and rather than talk about Good Sam for 40 minutes, although I could, I hit up my beta reader, the inestimable and wonderful non-Elvis, and said, hey, what would you like to talk about? And... One of the things she said was comparing Taka and Oros to that that relationship you have in college where you're physically close and you're comfortable and you love each other and your relationship has no boundaries and no labels. And so you either grow beyond that or it becomes toxic. And I feel yeah. like Taka and Oros, it, it, it ended before it had a chance to go in either direction. So you have these right. two grown men sort of stuck in a post-adolescent cycle. That's interesting, but I have trouble caring. Where I was going with the X-Men comparison was, first of all, definitely first class. Mm -hmm. In my head, I was picturing Michael Fassbender and James McAvoy, <laughs> but obviously you guys aren't in my head, so you didn't know that. 
So at the very end of first class, when they're on the beach and Magneto's, you know, chosen his side, they have this goodbye and it's very like Band of Brothers. So that's what I was thinking of because, you know, at the end of this backstory with Oros is also Tarka is holding him, you know, like cradling his broken body. <laughs> and so yes. that was the imagery that reminded me of it. But similarly with the Gaius Balter comparison, it made me wish that there was that conflict that Magneto and Professor X have that was absent from this. And I don't need them to be enemies. I don't even need them to have that conflict, but they have to have something. And all I got was this very sweet, very young, like Oros sometimes seemed like a child. Yeah, there were moments where I felt like I shipped it and moments where I felt like I absolutely should not be shipping it. Like I'm not entirely 100% certain that Oros is an adult. There was that layer of, I don't know quite what is going on here. I don't know if they're peers. Mm. I don't know if they're... I didn't quite understand what I was supposed to be getting out of this relationship other than what he'd already told us Yeah, in an episode three or four weeks ago. So that was the issue. It felt very underwritten. And then where we have Discovery on its way to the Galactic Barrier and it's big and it's important and it's dangerous. And then we keep flashing back to this planet and then we keep flashing back to Tarka. And just... The contrast between the two in terms of tension and narrative drive was just way too much. I liked the stuff on Discovery and I think I could have enjoyed the Tarka stuff if it had come earlier. I I just want to cut this season into little segments and rearrange them. Yeah, it, it feels a little weird. Like, I don't know quite why they're telling the story this way. Because it feels drawn out and also, like... We're not going anywhere. And yes, there is a story that in 1979, Tom Baker and Lala Ward took a break from filming Doctor Who and went to see Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien. And quite late in the movie, Tom got fed up and shouted, just show us the sodding alien already. And Tom was wrong about Alien, but that is how I feel about Species 10C. Everything in the Galactic Barrier feels like treading water in order to move all the pieces into place so that we can start learning things next week. I have to believe that next week we get to see 10C because A, Michael found a magic planet where they can be and even though they're not expected to be there, it's obviously where they're going to be. And B, Earth is going to be destroyed in 72 hours so we don't have enough time for it to be drawn out another week. Because they're not going to destroy Earth. So that's where I'm at. At least we're finally getting somewhere. And the thing is, I think that I could focus on the character building that is very strong in this episode, last episode, and the episode before. Mm -hmm. The three episodes since we got here. The character building has been really strong. There's character continuity. Again, we've been complaining about it, and now they're giving us character continuity. But... They stopped giving us story and plot. It's like they can't do both. Yes. It feels like the 
maybe not the first draft of a novel, but that point where you really wanted to give it to an editor and get an outsider's perspective to say, this is what you need to fix and here are some ideas for how to do it. And obviously with television, the writing time is extremely truncated and so television is an inherently messier genre. But I would have thought with the downtime of lockdown, they would have had more time for revision. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they had too much time. That they started overthinking it? Yeah. Yeah. And like putting it all in and then they had to make it fit into a time. Like this one was 52 minutes. Yes. So it's, it's kind of long. And so it, it does feel like maybe there was more, but they had to cut it and they had to keep, you know, Tarka's plot intact. I can see where if they had too much or if they were mm -hmm. thinking about it too much, like you said, that they could make the wrong choice. And that would end up being something that, like, if they spent a, a lot of time plotting it and then had a very truncated amount of time to actually create it, maybe there are deleted scenes. <laughs> Who knows? We have this really long scene where Saru is farewelling Lieutenant Bryce. It's not that long, it felt and why was that there? I could not tell you. The only thing that makes sense is that it's going to be important someday. That whatever Bryce and Coleridge are doing is important to something somewhere. Maybe not even this show. But other than that actor has it in his contract that like all of the bridge crew are required to have 1.75 scenes or something. I don't know. He has a role in another show now. That's why he's moved to the background and why we suddenly have Lieutenant Christopher. But we discussed this back in the first episode. We don't need an explanation for where Lieutenant Bryce has gone. Mm -mm. And I realised while I was editing last week that our complaints about the bridge crew are starting to get repetitive. So I don't want to get into that again. I just think you have a very long episode and that could have been cut. Because this season... I keep calling it flabby. I don't like that. I think it has overtones of fat phobia. But I think a story needs a structure the way, you know, it needs a little bit of tucking. It needs a little bit of pulling. Just, God, my metaphors are actually getting more fat phobic. Well, so save me. Let's talk about Saru and Tirina. Oh, my gosh. I love Saru and Tirina so much. But they also got three scenes <laughs> and it's a little bit like why because it's another one where it makes sense for this to be a slow burn because yes. she's a vulcan and this is his first real relationship so yes it, it absolutely makes sense for this to take all season long two seasons in fact but this particular episode felt really weird again it felt like they were definitely taking the next step in that push and pull because he did mm -hmm. confess his feelings but at the same time nothing happens <laughs> he and Hugh I love their scene mm. it was the same scene as last week yes <laughs> so why I do think we saw something new with Saru and Tarina in that at the end she comes to him for comfort whereas so far it's mainly been the other way around and I think that's great and I think her low-key anxiety and need for support is fantastic mm. but yeah we didn't need the scene 
I just feel like their first scene was set up so that it was artificially truncated so then Saru would have the surprise of finding mm-hmm. Tarina on board. That, to me, felt artificial. Mm-hmm. It could have just been the Vulcan official says to Tarina in front of Saru, actually, you need to go on this trip. And then you do a pan to his surprise scared Yes, face. yes. End scene. This is what I mean about needing an editor. None of this is bad. Not even the no. Tarka stuff is bad. It's just all in the wrong place. While we're on Saru and Tarina and Hugh, I'm going to jump down to my uh, quotation here, insecurity is universal, which yes. is something that Hugh says to Saru. Mm. And I think that it is clear in every relationship that was on screen this week and mm. potentially all of Discovery. <laughs> Because Rillick was showing her vulnerability to Michael. Yes, yes. And the parental blues of... (laughs) Stamets and Adira. Stamets and Adira were... He basically said, I'm going to over-dad you because my dad wasn't there for me. So that's like straight-up insecurity, (laughs) daddy issues. And then Tarka and Oros who I don't know about Oros because I know nothing about him. I know, you know nothing about him that isn't from what Tarka told me, so who even knows if it's true. But Tarka, I am fully convinced that Oros is actually the only friend he's ever had in his life, and that's why he's so desperate to get back to him. He's the only person that he's ever felt something for, whatever that is. I absolutely agree with that take, but I would also say that Tarka regards Book as a friend, and Book absolutely does not. (laughs) I don't know. He still seems to be playing Book. I don't don't want to say preying on Book, but... Despite what I just said, I definitely would not be hugely shocked if Tarka turned out to be a liar and betrayed Book, or was honest all along and betrayed Book. I agree that he's certainly trying to be friendly with Book, might even be trying to find another friend, <laughs> but, and, and he's just terrible at it. Like, he's horribly bad at peopling. It is a bit like Mira Lorca trying to build a relationship with Michael and actually having no idea how to construct a normal, healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. It, it just feels... You know, he, it's sort of like he's making friends with Book in order to get back to his real friend. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's not a great basis for friendship. It's a bit junior high, you know. You're cooler <laughs> than me, so I'm going to hang out with you in the hopes of getting to the really cool kids. I like what you said about insecurity being a driving force of discovery because I think that's really true. You know, we have the insecurity of serving under a secretive and treasonous captain. We have the insecurity of Michael's position in Starfleet and in her family. And we also have the insecurity of the show dealing with a fan base that's often not acting in good faith and launching a precarious new streaming service. Discovery is a really insecure show, and that's kind of why last year we thought that they had finally figured out the pacing, but it it feels more like now they figured out a formula and now they're trying to apply it again, 
And it's not working this time. And it's not working. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I really recommend the Trek Core review of this episode because the reviewer basically says that, that this is trying to do a season three style mystery box and failing. I, I really like the Trek Core reviews and I like their comments. Their comments are usually much better and more constructive and less racist than over at Trek Movie. So check that out because it was a really thoughtful review. And it has the same feeling that I do, which is, Discovery, I love you. You are such a good show, but you could be better. Yes. So my very favourite part of the show was the opening scene with Kovich and his fellow linguistics nerd being extremely geeky about universal translators and unconscious bias. So good. It was great! I love that sort of stuff that's both very true and deconstructing tropes that have been built into Star Trek from the beginning. And it makes me think about the interpretation is different from understanding line in Prodigy which I think is going yes. to be important for 10C. Not in a literal Murph is species 10C way, but as a theme that carries over. It reminded me of how they still can't communicate with Murph. Yes. Because he communicates on a different level and in a different way. Right. And I just watched a bit of Enterprise, so I was thinking about Hoshi and the creation of the Universal Translator and how much of humanity is changed and its relationship with the universe has changed because this one individual did so much of the foundational translating for Starfleet. I feel like there are linguists out there in the 32nd century writing papers about how Hoshi Sato invented the Federation because <laughs> she because she created the language with which right. it communicates. The way to really be more than just one culture or one mm. language yeah you, know? you can't have a, a united federation of planets if the planets can't speak to each other right but also an act of translation is an act of alteration we had the very interesting yes. idea in season one that the universal translator was regarded by the klingons of the time as a cultural insult i just finished reading a really amazing novel called the yield by Tara June Winch, which is about an Indigenous Australian woman coming home after her grandfather's death, I should say the author is herself Indigenous, and finding that he has created a dictionary of his people's language. And throughout the book, it's broken up into sections with the dictionary itself and musings on how, as I just said, translation is alteration, and to understand a language is to understand a people. So... As much as I think that they're holding off on the 10C thing for stupid reasons, once we get there, I think it's going to be potentially a really interesting and complicated story. Star Trek does arrival, as my flatmate said, before she moaned that it's going to be four more episodes before we see 10C. <laughs> I mean, there's only three episodes left, right? That's what I said! And she looked so... at me wide-eyed and scared and said, but Liz... Then there's Picard. The other thing that I really enjoyed about this episode was every single thing with President Rillick. It was great. It was a wonderful bookend the way the season started with mm. Rillick coming and being a presence and something that they didn't want. And they started, you know, partnered 
yes. the beginning of this particular journey. And they even discussed that. I love Michael consistently explaining her boundaries. Yes. This <laughs> has been a theme in this, this season, and I really, really appreciate it. So good job, Michael. I love that all along the way this season, we have seen Michael applying the lessons that she learned in previous seasons. And there have been a couple of blips here and there, like Choose to Live and the, the premiere teaser. But overall, the lessons that Michael has learned have been really consistently applied. And I love that. Yes. And Captain Michael. So good. So good, Captain Michael. I really was afraid that once she achieved the captaincy, she would stop growing as a character. But no, she is consistent but not stagnant, and I love that. And I think we saw that in both her conversations with Rillick about telling the truth about Earth and Navarre, but also in the final scene where she says, you're my president. Aww. And that, I, I just, you know, I don't really have any sentimental feelings about presidencies, but I got all warm in my chest. I think in both cases, Michael understands what people need. Yeah. And it goes a little bit back to her cultural anthropology. They have remembered she is a xenoanthropologist. <laughs> yes. Thank you, she, guys. She's, she's using her PhD, guys. <laughs> but I, I, I really feel like Michael as captain, Michael as leader, has mm. really been about listening and understanding what the people around her need in order to be the best crew possible. Do they need a rousing speech? Do they need the truth? Do they need a hug? Yeah. Or, you know, in that scene with Rillick, she understood that Rillick needed validation. Yes. And Rillick's need for validation doesn't weaken her. It doesn't make her a bad leader. It just means that she needed Michael's outside perspective. And I think that's great. I think this show is ultimately so respectful of both women and their positions, their strengths and their weaknesses and their regard for each other. So I have a bullet point here that I added, um, Michael's anger. Oh. Be because that was, I think, my favorite part of the episode was Michael giving bullet points of what she's angry about. <laughs> because she has a lot to be angry about. She I does. Say. And I think she's very restrained in how she expresses it. Certainly, I was surprised to learn that she is carrying this with her. But she's Michael. She chooses very carefully what emotions she expresses and what she keeps up to herself. And... This is one of those cases where I think she has looked at her crew and decided they don't need her anger. And I want to go, hey, Michael, it's okay to let this out. It's okay to have this feeling. But I kind of think she knows that. She's doing the Vulcan thing of going, I am feeling this emotion. I am feeling this emotion because of this, 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 and this. And it is not going to be a driving force, but I acknowledge that it's there. And I love the way Sonequa's voice broke ever so subtly when she says she's angry at Book. So that is the moment that really drove it home for me because it reminded me of my favorite Sarek moment in season two when his voice breaks when he's saying he would lose both of his children. Yes. And that's why he's being so terrible <laughs> and why he's lying and mm. bad. 
And I, I love Michael as Sarek's daughter, as opposed to Spock as Sarek's son. I really, really like the Sarek and Michael relationship. And again, it sort of ties it all in. I, I absolutely felt like a Vulcan way of dealing with her emotions, even though her emotions are totally human and she wasn't being a Vulcan. Like she wasn't saying, I'm going to Vulcan this. No, she was just no. being Michael about it. And while I loved it and I really appreciated it because the entire episode, exactly like last episode, I just kept wanting someone to scream and yell and have a tantrum. <laughs> and I, like, this is another thing that it's just me because people don't do that in Starfleet, which is why I could never be in Starfleet because I just really can't take constant restraint. It's so hard. It's hard for me to put myself in a place of I'm supposed to worry about Earth blowing up in 72 hours without anyone reacting in a loud way. Because they were powerful. Michael's anger was very powerful. Rulik's sadness was very powerful. Her voice broke too when she was talking about her people back home. And also when they did make the announcement to the whole crew, they panned to Detmer and mm. she looked... In that moment, I was like, man, this is like in the pilot when, <laughs> when we lose your show and when everything's blowing up and Detmer's been there for the whole thing and she had her depression arc last season. And so it just really felt like they panned to her last on purpose because they were saying, remember how much this crew has been through? Yes. Do they really need this? Oh, look, I was like, do we, the audience, really need this? Yeah, no. Because, of course, Earth and Navarra threatened. Of course. It's very much every Doctor Who finale is about Earth being threatened. Every Christmas special, Earth is threatened. It was just tiring. And then the bit where they go around the bridge and everyone's like, I'm going to go on my holiday here on Earth. And I'm like, really? You're all from Earth? That just seems so unlikely to me. They're all from Earth and mostly from America. Yes! It felt silly to me. Did it have to be Hawaii? Couldn't it have been any other tropical place? Any tropical place whose native people are not literally asking that tourists not go there right now? I know yeah. that right now is not the 32nd century, but it's just something that jumped out at me. That scene was silly and I didn't like it, but I liked what was around it. The debate between Rillick and Michael about whether to tell people, it did feel like a retread of the Nah and Michael discussion last week, but I don't know. I think it's, again, we could have simply... Oh, how, how We didn't need that scene with the crew to show that Michael was right. Michael could have made her argument and Rillick could have accepted it, but the writers don't trust the audience to trust Michael. Probably with good reason, but that means they have to talk down to us with this silly holiday planning scene to show that Michael is right. It was and so I, I... weird. It was, it was such a weird scene. I was like, I guess we are doing this because otherwise we're... I, I don't know. I, and it felt a little 
infantilizing, I guess, which is the same thing that you're saying. Just, yeah. just they don't trust the audience to do it without this like slideshow. But specifically because it was like, oh, Christopher's the new guy. And so he hasn't been here for all of our other universe mm. ending crises. So we have to distract him with the Alps. I don't, like, it was like skiing. I don't even know. I don't remember what his was. It's silly enough that you think you have to threaten Earth to make the audience care, which is a problem we had back in season one with the destruction mm -hmm. of Starbase One and all that. It's even sillier that you need to persuade the audience who live on Earth to care that Earth is being destroyed. Okay, now I've said that aloud and thought about climate change, maybe we do need to persuade the audience to care that Earth is being destroyed. But... <laughs> something which makes me a lot happier okay do we think that Rilla and Vance used to be a couple yes okay yes so <laughs> the way he said her name I had to pause and calm down I was just blown over mm. by just that one word her name in his soft voice and then after they leave and they disappear and it's just his reflection in the window and he says godspeed discovery i know so i was like i can't this is way too much for me there was this moment where she looked at him and i was like oh my god she loves him and she will never tell him and then we learn that she has her own partner and i'm like okay so they were a couple once and they have loved each other for years and now they are happily partnered elsewhere and they would never betray those relationships but at the same time their love endures even if it is just now platonic right mm. yes one of my favorite relationship dynamics is we could be this mm. other thing but we've chosen to be this thing and all of the silence negotiation that yes. happens with emotions in those cases it's sort of the flip side of what we were discussing with Gwyn and Dahl a few weeks ago. That was, we have been friends for years and just realised that we love each other. And this is, we have been in love and now we are friends and we love each other. Yes, right. When they're both based in that love, not only are there different kinds of love, obviously, but there's also different ways to love the same person. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, or separated by time or at the same time, or both. You don't stop having these feelings, even if they change. No, no, exactly. I was just so, so, so pleased. With yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's amazing how one word <laughs> can change. Like, I, like, I, that was, like, I take it back about the anger. That was my favorite part of it. <laughs> then the anger. Mm. And the thing is that... There were like, you know, 20 minutes of Oros and Tarka that I was supposed to have that reaction to, and I didn't. And five seconds of Rillic and Vance that just totally sold me. So is this time to mention my fear that now that I love Rillic, she's going to sacrifice yes. herself for Discovery and the Federation? Exactly. Hmm. I'm a little concerned that yeah. 
they had that whole scene about, you know, you have to support the vice president, mm-hmm. whoever that is. And last season it was, I have to support the president, whoever that is. And then it was her. And <laughs> I'm concerned. I just feel like Discovery has not earned my trust when it comes to older women in positions of power. I mean, they can't kill off Tarina either, right? Like, that can't be where that's going. No, I feel like Rillick is in more danger than Tarina. I don't want anyone to die except Tarka. Tarka's allowed <laughs> to die. He can sacrifice himself for whatever. Mm. But I don't want Rillick to die because she's super interesting and because there's a lot... There's a lot of there there. Yeah. And they mentioned her... 20 years as an ambassador. Yes. Which I was like, yes, good. This is all, everything is great. Everything is great about that scene. It was so good. It also means that her blue collar background on freighter ships was indeed more of a stump speech concept than an accurate reflection of her entire life. (laughs) Right. She grew up like that, but then she was an ambassador for 20 years. Rillick is out here living the archer life, which is... (laughs) <laughs> scary but also I kind of like it because Archer too had a dad who never got what he wanted and mm. so he grew up with a chip on his shoulder and he was gonna go get it for him and was an ambassador <laughs> for a number of years and then president of the federation so okay you've put saying. it that way and now I am concerned that Rillick is also George <laughs> W. Bush but I feel like Rillick and Michael have the relationship that I wanted for Michael and Kat in that they are colleagues and there's a rank difference, but they're not necessarily in a mentor-protege situation, but a professional relationship of mutual respect and admiration and occasional disagreement. And that's great. So if they blow her up, I'm just going to be really, really mad. Right. Yeah. Stop blowing people up. I'm going to preemptively say, <laughs> stop blowing people up. Yeah, yeah. Or at least, like, you can maim her a little. I don't mind, like, if she loses some limbs or whatever. But she's also not allowed to fall down a shaft. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's not allowed to die. I just... <laughs> okay. Hmm. Okay. Okay. I think we've said it all. All right. I do just want to say that I think I've convinced myself that most of the issues I had with this episode were either I have physical problem or mm. a taste issue. Absolutely. So I don't hate it. I never hated it, but I was kind of upset about it last night. I have to say, I definitely had to rewatch it to like, and, I, and I, I definitely liked it better the second time, but I also had to mitigate my reactions, both in mm. the, like, honestly, it made me sick. But it also, like, I had to really, really pay attention to the Tarka scenes to, like, care. I had to force myself to want to watch them. But that's why I say taste. I think it just wasn't for me. And that, that's fine. I think I would say my problems with the structure are objective, but I also think that a lot of viewers 
are not structure nerds the way I am and will probably go, oh yeah, that's a bit messy. I really wish they'd let us see the aliens already and then not worry about it again. Right. It's, it's frustrating to me that we basically can't decide until the end of the season whether or not this is a good season. Whereas I think mm. by this point in season three, we were like, okay, this is very, very solid. They're going to have to mess up very badly to ruin it. Yes. But, yes. you know, I, I guess I can live with a little bit of uncertainty. <laughs> I don't have enough of that in my life. Just don't do those effects again. <laughs> I don't like it. Again, other people loved it. So that's just, that's a me problem. I can't go to Universal Studios either. So. Okay. Yeah. Do you struggle with laser tag? Because some of my friends with visual processing issues don't do well. I've done laser tag maybe twice. I have no recollection of, of even really like how I felt during laser tag. We should go to laser tag and find out. Okay. We'll, we'll add that to the list of things we're doing at the 2024 convention. <laughs> we better get phasers. <laughs> Phaser tag! You heard it here first. Thank you for listening to Antimatter Pod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.com, including links to our social media, credits for our theme music, and transcripts of our episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr, all at antimatterpod. And write to us at mail at answermanorpod.com. If you like us, please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And join us next week where we will be discussing the next episode of Star Trek Discovery. And maybe a little bit. <laughs> I am really concerned about my ability to mute all of Picard before. I know, <laughs> yeah. I know, well, I know you want to just pretend Picard isn't happening. It's already become hard <laughs> to pretend the card is happening. So. I saw the sneak peek in the ready room and I was like, oh no, I'm excited. Oh no, screeners are going out and critics are saying it's good. Oh no. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see.